Hi, this is Steve Meyer, and I want to thank you for being a regular listener of the ID the Future podcast. We appreciate your interest in intelligent design and the work we're doing to develop the case for the theory of intelligent design. And I'd like to encourage you, if you find these broadcasts edifying, intellectually or otherwise, to become a regular financial supporter of the work of the Center for Science and Culture. You may know that we depend entirely on private donations. We don't get any federal money. We don't get government money for our scientific research program. And if you find the work that we're doing interesting, we'd be awfully grateful if you'd consider becoming a partner in that work by providing whatever you're able to ensure that that work goes forward. To give, go to idthefuture.com slash donate. That's idthefuture.com slash donate. Thank you so much. Today on ID the Future, we're happy to bring you another interview with Dr. Tom Woodward, host of the Universe Next Door syndicated radio broadcast. In conjunction with Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, Dr. Woodward regularly interviews CSC scientists and scholars on various aspects of the debate over Darwinian evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to the Universe Next Door, where today we're going to have a treat. We're going to be taking a trip back in time with the assistance Professor Michael Flannery, who's an expert on the time frame in the 1800s that we're going to be visiting, and it's a, an amazing story. We were able to tap into the wisdom and knowledge of Professor Flannery last week. If you were here with us on The Universe Next Door, you heard him introducing us to this incredibly enigmatic, he's a puzzling and fascinating figure in the history of science, a friend of Charles Darwin, and the co-discoverer of the principle of natural selection as a, a very important force, according to his theory and, and Darwin's theory, of transformation over time. His name is Alfred Wallace, and he is the professor with us today. Michael Flannery is a published author and expert on the works of Wallace. Welcome back, Michael Flannery. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule there at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. The story of Alfred Wallace is one that you have contributed your own scholarship to by your analysis, your reading, not only his works, but even going there to the collection at the University of Edinburgh and observing in his some 400 and some volumes the jottings, the marginalia, the, the scribblings of his comments. That must have been a lot of fun to see what he wrote. It was a lot of fun, and you can see in his own hand his thought processes and the things he, that he chose to underline, the comments he made, and you can almost uh, sort of be with Wallace as he was reading these volumes from his own library. So it was actually quite exciting. Very important to really get into what was the thinking of authors and not just to read modern-day synopsis, one paragraph on their whole life, kind of, uh, you know, superficial understandings. So let's review the bidding here. We've actually had one opportunity to talk about Wallace, and today we're going to go deeper and really kind of push to this amazing culmination of his career when Wallace, of all people, appears to be outlining something like a theory of intelligent design. I mean, who would have expected that to come out of the mind and the, the thinking process of the, the one who almost beat Charles Darwin to the punch in proposing natural selection? 
Let's go back, Professor Flannery. What would you say if someone said that the understanding today in, let's say, the, the dominant view in the biological world of secular universities is one of chance and necessity, is responsible for all the massive, glorious creatures we see swimming or flying or, or stomping along the ground. The creations of the world are not a creation of a wise designer, but the creation of natural processes that would be described under chance and necessity, necessity being natural law. Would you view that as the dominant view, and if so, since when? I guess my short answer would be if you look through the vast history of science, generally speaking, and you go back into deep science, you go back into the days of uh, the Enlightenment, the uh, Renaissance, you go back to Isaac Newton, for example, and you go back to the great historical figures of Kepler and so forth. All of those individuals did not see the diversity of life, did not see the complexity of the universe or the cosmos as being the result of blind processes of chance and necessity. They assumed a purpose and a an intelligent creator in that process. They believed that in the laws of nature, that all the laws of nature had to have a lawgiver. And I think through the general history of Western science, that has been the standard fare. You might say the unique view, the view that has not been the typical one is the view of that all of this complexity is due to blind processes of chance and necessity. So my answer is that history itself does not fall on the side of chance and necessity in terms of the generations who have contributed to science. Okay. And of course, chance and necessity means everything is driven by laws of nature working their way out through random accidental, unplanned, unintelligent collocations of matter, bumping. Given uh, these conditions, it was of necessity going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that newer view, which might be traceable to a few philosophers, let's say, I'm, I'm supposing, you know, an Examander, you know, perhaps Democritus, Lucretius, mm-hmm. and Epicurus in, in uh, the prior to the modern era. Most of those uh, ancient philosophers were not holding sway until Charles Darwin came to the fore in 1859 when the world tilted away from the conception of a designer. That would be the basic switch point? I would say, you know, Darwin certainly was the principal catalyst in the sea change of thought toward that view. Mm-hmm. There's, okay. there's no doubt about it. Right. And at the same time, we find this interesting figure working on the other side of the world, as you explained. Was he on the island of Borneo in Malaysia, or what it would be modern uh, day? Well, he had spent time on the island of Borneo, in particular in Sarawak, but he had been in many places. When he wrote the famous letter that he sent to Darwin laying out his theory of natural selection, 
He was on a tiny island called Ternay, which is a small island in what the British at the time called the Spice Islands. Hmm. And uh, so even to this day, we refer to that famous letter as the Ternate letter, because it. we actually think that he might have been on an even smaller, even more obscure island called Gilolo, and that he actually sent the letter from Ternate because that's where there was mail service. But that's something that only a few handful of specialists argue over. Sure. And for summary purposes, as you were able to share with us in your beautiful and very powerful historical exposition last week, you were explaining that there was this letter that arrived a year before Darwin's book was published that kind of spurred him on to take right. the theory that had been kind of in his notebook and in his mind, maybe shared privately with friends, and then he published it to the world. Right. That's in short order what happened. He gets this letter in June of 1858. He doesn't know what to do with it. He says, this is my, basically my theory of natural selection. What do we do? He goes to Joseph Hooker and Charles Lyell. Both of them say, well, let's just read your paper along with his paper at the next meeting of the Linnaean Society on July 1st, 1858. Hmm. And at that point, then he starts gathering his material together and then issues in November of 1859, Origin of Species. So it took about a year for him to hurry and, yep. and, and get the book put together, a very, very concentrated effort. And then by the mid to late, mid and late 1860s, you said that Wallace comes back to England from the other side of the world and actually is revealing he thinks something significant is there in humanity. Just give us a recap. Well, when he returns back to England, he, remember, unlike Darwin, who really had five years of field experience as a naturalist, it was his, his five years on the Beagle from December 1831 to October of 1836. Wallace had 12 years of field experience. He had four years in the Amazon and eight years in the, in the Malay Archipelago. And so the point is, is that Wallace lived with the native people. He didn't just visit them. He lived with them for years. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, made him start to think about human beings as a type, as a type of being that was apart from all others. It was a common belief in the Victorian era, uh, the English in particular, like to categorize humans always with typically the Western European or the Anglo being the pinnacle and then various degrees under that as actually lesser human beings. Hmm. Wallace, because he lived with people, tribal units, in fact, he spent some time with Dayak headhunters, wow. came to have very different views. He did not categorize human beings hierarchically that way. Hmm and began to see human beings as a, really as a creation separate and apart, very distinct from animals, in a profoundly different way from the way Darwin did. And if you really want Darwin's view of the man-animal link, you have to read his book, The Descent of Man. Wow. Well, today with us again, Michael Flannery. He is a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and he's an expert on the topic of our discussion, Alfred Wallace. We're going to be talking a little bit more about his break with his friend, uh, Charles Darwin, that came in 1869 when we return after just a brief break here on The Universe Next Door. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to The Universe Next Door. Today, we are thrilled to have with us on the phone, Michael Flannery. He is leading us through the, the life story of two very important figures in natural history in the study of biology and origins. And that's Charles Darwin, but more significantly, Alfred Wallace, who co-discovered around the same time, 1858, the principle of natural selection. When I say co-discovered, at least they published through that Linnaean Society meeting their discoveries were made known, I could say it in those terms, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and today we are going to be finishing up this story. And Michael, you have been introducing us to many twists and turns in this plot, this true story. But after around 1869, the relationship, I'll put it in that term, between Wallace and Darwin changed. What happened in 1869? We'll just get into some of the later things as well. Wallace basically broke with Darwin over the special attributes of human beings. He said, look, human beings have many special attributes. They have the ability to reason abstractly, their ability to perform mathematics, their language, their love of music, dance, art, all of these things suggest that they are indeed a being apart. And in order to understand the source of that, Wallace said, we have to call upon an overruling intelligence. This mm. cannot be something that can occur simply by the processes of natural selection, which really basically is just a process of selective pressures and the development of certain attributes over time because of selective pressures. But but why would you develop these special attributes by means of survival that have no importance for survival? For example, working calculus isn't going to help you fight off that saber-toothed tiger or the love of dance or the love of art, fine carvings, which Wallace himself found amongst many tribes and peoples wherever he went. These are not things that are required for strict survival purposes. So why does it go so far beyond that? And he said, well, the mind of man has to be caused by or has to be the result of an overruling intelligence. Today with us, Michael Flannery, expert on Alfred Wallace. And, of course, the story of Alfred Wallace is contained in the books that you've written. If you want to just check out our Overview of the work of Michael Flannery, just visit us on the homepage of apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. Professor Flannery, you've told us about the series of books that he worked on. I believe there were other books, weren't there, before his bombshell near the end of his life, the 1910 book? Were there other books that he wrote? Uh, yes. Well, actually, he was pretty prolific. He wrote long before that probably what's regarded as the most important travel narratives ever published in the English language, and it's called the Malay Archipelago mm. that he published in 1869. It's still available in paperback. It's a wonderful read. Mm. It influenced novelists like Somerset Maugham. It also uh, influenced Joseph Conrad. So it was not only an important work, but a, I think a major literary achievement. He also, uh, in 1876, published The Geographical Distribution of Animals, and that is one of the seminal works in the field of biogeography. Hmm. 
So that was an important work. More philosophically, however, he published a work called Miracles in Modern Spiritualism in 1896. The opening chapter of that might interest your readers because he has, in my opinion, a devastating rebuttal of the argument of David Hume. Hmm. And then Man's Place in the Universe, 1903, is his view of uh, cosmology, the idea he believed that uh, life on Earth was unique and uh, was probably singular. It parallels in many ways the more recent work of Jay Richards and Guillermo Gonzalez called The Privileged Planet. Wow. Well, this is incredible. Prolific is a well-deserved descriptor for this amazing uh, scientist, Alfred Wallace, co-discoverer of the principle of natural selection. Before we recap what happened in 1910 with his book, The World of Life, Manifestation of Power, Directive Mind, and Ultimate Purpose, just give us a sense of why is Wallace, first of all, why is he important? Well, I, I think there's four reasons why he's important. The first reason is the obvious reason. I mean, he is indeed the co-discoverer of natural selection, and he's the one that prompted Darwin to finally rush his origin of the species to press. Okay. The second reason is related to the book I just mentioned, The Malar Archipelago. He's probably one of the world's greatest uh, scientific adventure explorers. Hmm. And his book uh, in 1869, The Malar Archipelago, has influenced generations, including, as I mentioned before, uh, generations of, of novelists and, and literary figures. I think the third reason is his uh, very important contributions to early biogeography. And then last but not least, and I think in some senses the most important for us uh, here right now on this program, is that while he's important as the co-discoverer of natural selection, because this is the workhorse of Darwinian evolution, he diverged from, more importantly, not just from Darwin's theory, he diverged from a fancy term is called methodological naturalism. That's a, that's a mouthful, but it's a very important term that I use in my classes. Say that yes, one more time. And, and what this means... Methodological uh, naturalism being naturalism means only physical or natural causes will be allowed into consideration. Right. It, it's the notion that scientists must invoke only natural processes hmm. functioning via unbroken natural laws in non-purposeful ways. Wow. And Wallace broke from that. And he proposed a theory of evolution defined by both intelligence and design, the one that you mentioned earlier called The World of Life, which came out in 1910. Well, so why is Wallace not remembered? Is that one of the reasons right there? Well, I think so. And the reasons are complex, but largely related to the complete and sweeping dominance of Darwinian evolution. Mm. From the very beginning, when the theory of natural selection was unveiled to the scientific community at the Linnaean Society that we mentioned earlier, the entire program was engineered by Darwin's colleagues and close friends, in this case particularly Joseph Hooker and Charles Lyell, to give their friend priority. And when Origin was published a little over a year later, modern evolutionary theory became Darwin's theory. Mm. Another is that Darwin's allies, let's not forget his bulldog defender, Thomas Henry Huxley. T.H. Huxley. Yeah, sought to solidify the theory by managing its every promotional and public aspect. And he did this through a group that he actually put together called the X Club. And this was a group of eight kindred spirits 
Huxley the leader, Joseph Hooker, John Tyndall, guy by the name of George Busk, Edward Franklin, Herbert Spencer, Thomas Hearst, and John Lubbock. Now, when you say X Club, like capital X hyphen... Capital X, capital C-L-U-B. Gotcha. And it was under Huxley's skillful management of the X Club that ensured the success of Darwinism, establishing it really as the preeminent theory of biological life, first in England and then later throughout all of Europe. Now, as if this weren't all enough to consign Wallace to obscurity, Wallace's insistence upon using the term Darwinism in the context of his very own, very different theory really tended to cause confusion and misunderstanding. And in fact, even his friend Herbert Spencer, when Wallace published his book called Darwinism, an Exposition of the Theory of Natural Selection in 1889, Spencer got the copy and he says, why are you calling this Darwinism? He says, your theory isn't anything like Darwinism. (laughs) And uh, Wallace, I think, really wanted to sort of sail under the Darwinian banner only insofar as he wanted to be able to get a hearing for it. Gotcha. But well, by 1910, he doesn't care about that anymore. And that's when he's putting out the world of life and he's really laying out in some 400 odd pages a real purpose driven, purpose imbued natural world. And that's the book, The World of Life. Right. Yes. Yeah. Came out in 1910, just three years before he passed away. Well, we've had a fantastic fast tour, a two week uh, exposition of the importance of uh, not only Wallace's work in its own right as a biologist, as a naturalist, but also in producing what in effect was a precursor of modern intelligent design theory. I want to thank uh, Michael Flannery, our uh, expert in this area. And I also want to thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. I want to invite you to join us for the uh, special evening at Pasco Hernando State College on the evening of November 17th. That's at 7 p.m. in the Performing Arts Center. I'll be making a presentation entitled, Is God a Delusion? What Does the Scientific Evidence Say? Join us for that exciting evening, and thank you for being with us on The Universe Next Door. program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2014. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.